0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card, A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns, by Arnold Bennett CHAPTER Eleven. ONE "'Although Denry was extremely happy as a bridegroom, and capable of the most foolish symptoms of affection in private, he said to himself, and he said to Nelly, and she sturdily agreed with him, "'We aren't going to be the ordinary silly honeymooners,' by which, of course, he meant that they would behave so as to be taken for staid married persons. "'They failed thoroughly in this enterprise as far as London, where they spent a couple of nights.' but on leaving Charing Cross they made a new and better start in the light of experience. Their destination, it need hardly be said, was Switzerland. After Mrs. Capron Smith's remarks on the necessity of going to Switzerland in winter, if one wished to respect oneself, there was really no alternative to Switzerland. Thus it was announced in the signal, which had reported the wedding in ten lines, owing to the excessive quietude of the wedding, that Mr. and Mrs. Councillor Machin were spending a month at Montpredou-sur-Montreux, on the lake of Geneva, and the announcement looked very well. At Dieppe they got a through-carriage. There were several through-carriages for Switzerland on the train. In walking through the corridors from one to another, Denry and Nelly had their first glimpse of the world which travels, and which runs off for a holiday whenever it feels in the mood. The idea of going for a holiday in any month but August seemed odd to both of them. Denry was very bold, and would insist on talking in a naturally loud voice. Nellie was timid and clinging. "'What do you say?' Denry would roar at her when she half-whispered something, and she had to repeat it so that all could hear. It was part of their plan to address each other curtly, brusquely, and to frown and pretend to be slightly bored by each other. They were outclassed by the world which travels. Try as they might, even Denry was morally intimidated. He had managed his clothes fairly correctly. He was not ashamed of them, and Nellie's were by no means the worst in the compartments. Indeed, according to the standard of some of the more intimidating women, Nellie's costume erred in not being quite sufficiently negligent—sufficiently anyhow. And they had plenty, and ten times plenty, of money, and the consciousness of it. Expense was not being spared on that honeymoon. "'And yet, well, all that can be said is that the company was imposing. "'The company, which was entirely English, "'seemed to be unaware that anyone ever did anything else "'but travel luxuriously to places mentioned in second-year geographies. "'It astounded Nelly that there should be so many people in the world "'with nothing to do but spend, "'and they were constantly saying the strangest things "'with an air of perfect calm.' "'How much did you pay for the excess luggage?' an untidy young woman asked of an old man. "'Oh, thirteen pounds,' answered the old man carelessly. And not long before Nelly had scarcely escaped ten days in the steerage of an Atlantic liner. After dinner in the restaurant car—no champagne, because it was vulgar, but a good, sound, expensive wine— they felt more equal to the situation, more like part-owners of the train. Nellie prudently went to bed, ere the triumphant feeling wore off. But Denry stayed up smoking in the corridor. He stayed up very late, being proud and happy, and too avid of new sensations to be able to think of sleep. It was a match which led to a conversation between himself and a thin, drawling, overbearing fellow with an eyeglass. Denry had hated this lordly creature all the way from Dieppe. In presenting him with a match, he felt that he was somehow getting the better of him. For the match was precious in the nocturnal solitude of the vibrating corridor. The mere fact that two people are alone together and awake, divided from a sleeping or sleepy population only by a row of closed, mysterious doors, will do much to break down social barriers. The excellence of Denry's cigar also helped. It atoned for the breadth of his accent. He said to himself, I'll have a bit of a chat with this Johnny. And then he said aloud, "'Not a bad train, this.' "'No,' the eyeglass agreed languidly. "'Pity they gave you such a beast to dinner,' and Denry agreed hastily that it was. Soon they were chatting of places, and somehow it came out of Denry that he was going to Montreux. The eyeglass professed its indifference to Montreux in winter, but said the resorts above Montreux were all right, such as Co or Perdue. And Denry said— "'Well, of course, shouldn't think of stopping in, Montreux, going to try Pridoux. The eyeglass said it wasn't going as far as Switzerland yet. It meant to stop in the Jura. "'Geneva's a pretty deadly place, ain't it?' said the eyeglass, after a pause. "'Yes,' said Denry. "'Been there since that new Esplanade was finished?' "'No,' said Denry. "'I saw nothing of it.' "'When were you there?' "'Oh, a couple of years ago.' "'Ah, it wasn't started then. "'Comic thing. "'Of course they're awfully proud in Geneva "'of the view of Mont Blanc.' "'Yes,' sir," said Denry. "'Ever noticed how queer women are about that view? "'They're no end keen on it at first, "'but after a day or two it gets on their nerves.' Uh, "'Yes,' said Denry, "'I've noticed that myself. "'My wife.' "'He stopped.' because he didn't know what he was going to say.' The eyeglass nodded understandingly. "'All alike,' it said. "'Odd thing.' When Denry introduced himself into the two-berth compartment, which he had managed to secure at the end of the carriage for himself and Nelly, the poor, tired child was as wakeful as an owl. "'Who have you been talking to?' she yawned. "'The eyeglass, Johnny.' "'Oh, really?' Nelly murmured, interested and impressed. "'With him, have you? I could hear voices. What sort of man is he?' "'He seems to be an ass,' said Denry. "'Fearfully haw-haw. Couldn't stand him for long. I've made him believe we have been married for two years.' 2. They stood on the balcony of the Hotel Beausite at Montpredou. A little below, to the right, was the other hotel, the Metropole with the red and white Swiss flag waving over its central tower. A little below that was the terminal station of the funicular railway from Montreux. The railway ran down the sheer of the mountain into the roofs of Montreux, like a wire. On it two toy trains crawled towards each other, like flies, climbing and descending a wall. Beyond the fringe of hotels that constituted Montreux was a strip of water, and beyond the water a range of hills, white at the top, so these are the Alps, Nelly exclaimed. She was disappointed. He also. But when Denry learnt from the guidebook and by inquiry that the strip of lake was seven miles across and the highest notched peaks ten thousand feet above the sea and twenty five miles off, Nelly gasped and was content. They liked the Hotel Beauceat. It had been recommended to Denry by a man who knew what was what as the best hotel in Switzerland. "'Don't you be misled by prices,' the man had said. And Henry was not. He paid sixteen francs a day for the two of them at the beau and was rather relieved than otherwise by the absence of finger-bowls. Everything was very good, except sometimes the hot water. The hot water-cans bore the legend Hot Water, but these two words were occasionally the only evidence of heat in the water.' On the other hand, the bedrooms could be made sultry by merely turning a handle, and the windows were double. Nellie was wondrously inventive. They breakfasted in bed, and she would save butter and honey from the breakfast to furnish forth afternoon tea, which was not included in the terms. She served the butter freshly with ice by the simple expedient of leaving it outside the window of a night, and Denry was struck by this housewifery. The other guests appeared to be of a comfortable, companionable class, with, as Denry said, no frills. They were amazed to learn that a chattering little woman of thirty-five, who gossiped with everybody, and soon invited Denry and Nelly to have tea in her room, was an authentic Russian countess, inscribed in the visitors' lists as Comtesse Roul, with Maid, Bosco. Her room was the untidiest that Nelly had ever seen, and the tea a picnic. Still, it was thrilling to have had tea with a Russian countess. Plots, nihilism, secret police, marble palaces. Those visitors' lists were breathtaking. Pages and pages of them, scores of hotels, thousands of names, nearly all English, and all people who came to Switzerland in winter, having naught else to do. Denry and Nelly bathed in correctness, as in a bath. The only persons in the hotel with whom they did not get on nor hit it off were a military party, chiefly named Clutterbuck, and presided over by a major Clutterbuck and his wife. They sat at a large table in the corner—father, mother, several children, a sister-in-law, a sister, a governess, eight heads in all—and while utterly polite they seemed to draw a ring round themselves. They grumbled at the hotel. They played bridge, then a newish game, And once, when Denry and the Countess played with them—Denry being an adept card-player for shilling points—Denry overheard the sister-in-law saying that she was sure Captain Deverer wouldn't play for shilling points. This was the first rumour of the existence of Captain Deverer, but afterwards Captain Deverer began to be mentioned several times a day. Captain Deverer was coming to join them, and it seemed that he was a very particular man. Soon all the rest of the hotel had got its back up against this arriving Captain Deverer. Then a Clutterbuck cousin came, a smiling, hard, fluffy woman, and pronounced definitely that the hotel beau seat would never do for Captain Deverer. This cousin aroused Denry's hostility in a strange way. She imparted to the Countess, who united all sects, her opinion that Denry and Nelly were on their honeymoon. At night, in a corner of the drawing room. The Countess, delicately but bluntly, asked Nelly if she had been married long. No, said Nelly. A month? asked the Countess, smiling. No, said Nelly. The next day all the hotel knew. The vast edifice of make-believe that Denry and Nelly had laboriously erected crumbled at a word, and they stood forth, those two, blushing for the criminals they were. The hotel was delighted. There is more rejoicing in a hotel over one honeymoon couple than over fifty families with children. But the hotel had a shock the same day. The Clutterbuck cousin had proclaimed that owing to the inadequacy of the bedroom furniture, she had been obliged to employ a sofa as a wardrobe. Then there were more references to Captain Deverer, and then at dinner it became known heaven knows how. That the entire Clutterbuck party had given notice and was seceding to the Hotel Metropole. Also, they had tried to carry the Countess with them, but had failed. Now, among the guests of the Hotel Beausite, there had always been a professed scorn of the rival Hotel Metropole, which was a franc-a-day dearer and famous for its new and rich furniture. The Metropole had an orchestra twice a week, and the English church services were held in its drawing room, and it was larger than the Beausite. In spite of these facts, the clients of the beaux affected to despise it, saying that the food was inferior and that the guests were snobbish. It was an article of faith in the beaux that the beaux was the best hotel on the mountainside, if not in Switzerland. The insolence of this defection on the part of the Clutterbucks! How on earth could people have the face to go to a landlord and say to him that they meant to desert him in favour of his rival? Another detail. The secession of nine or ten people from one hotel to the other meant that the Metropole would decidedly be more populous than the Beau Seat, and on the point of numbers the emulation was very keen. "'Well,' said the beaux Seat. "'let them go, with their Captain Devereux. We shall be better without em And that deadliest of all feuds sprang up, a rivalry between the guests of rival hotels. The Metropole had issued a general invitation to a dance, and after the monstrous conduct of the clutterbucks, the question arose whether the beau seat should not boycott the dance. However, it was settled that the truly effective course would be to go with critical noses in the air and emit unfavourable comparisons with the beau seat. The beau seat suddenly became perfect in the esteem of its patrons. Not another word was heard on the subject of hot water being coated with ice and the Clutterbucks, with incredible assurance, slid their luggage off in a sleigh to the Metropole in the full light of day amidst the contempt of the faithful. 3. Under the stars, the dancing section of the bow-seat went off in jingling sleighs over the snow to the ball at the Metropole. The distance was not great, but it was great enough to show the inadequacy of furs against twenty degrees of mountain frost and it was also great enough to allow the party to come to a general, final understanding that its demeanour must be cold and critical in the gilded halls of the Metropole. The rumour ran that Captain Deverer had arrived, and everyone agreed that he must be an insufferable booby, except the Countess Rule, who never used her fluent exotic English to say ill of anybody. The gilded halls of the Metropole certainly were imposing. The hotel was incontestably larger than the beau-seat, newer, more richly furnished. Its occupants, too, had a lordly way with them, trying to others, but inimitable. Hence the visitors from the bow-seat, as they moved to and fro beneath those crystal chandeliers from Tottenham Court Road, had their work cut out to maintain the mien of haughty indifference. Nellie, for instance, frankly could not do it, and Denry did not do it very well. Denry, nevertheless, did score one point over Mrs. Clutterbuck's fussy cousin— "'Captain Devereux has come,' said this latter. "'He was very late. "'He'll be downstairs in a few minutes. "'We shall get him to lead the cotillion.' "'Captain Devereux?' Denry questioned. "'Yes, you've heard us mention him,' said the cousin, affronted. "'Possibly,' said Denry. "'I don't remember.' On hearing this brief colloquy, the cohorts of the beaux felt that in Denry they possessed the making of a champion. There was a disturbing surprise, however, waiting for Denry. The lift descended, and with a peculiar double action of his arms on the doors, like a pantomime fairy emerging from an enchanted castle, a tall, thin man stepped elegantly out of the lift, and approached the company with a certain mincingness. But before he could reach the company, several young women had rushed towards him, as though with the intention of committing suicide by hanging themselves from his neck. He was in an evening suit so perfect in detail that it might have sustained comparison with the costume of the head-waiter, and he wore an eyeglass in his left eye. It was the eyeglass that made Denry jump. For two seconds he dismissed the notion, but another two seconds of examination showed beyond doubt that this eyeglass was the eyeglass of the train, and Denry had apprehensions. "'Captain Devera! exclaimed several voices. The manner in which the youthful and the mature fair clustered around this captain, aged forty, and not handsome, was really extraordinary to the males of the Hotel Beausite. Even the little Russian countess attached herself to him at once, and by reason of her title, her social energy, and her personal distinction, she took natural precedence of the others. Recognize him?' Denry whispered to his wife. Nellie nodded. "'He seems rather nice.' she said diffidently. "'Nice!' Denry repeated the adjective. "'A man's an ass.' And the majority of the Beau-Seat party agreed with Denry's verdict, either by word or gesture. Captain Devereux stared fixedly at Denry, then smiled vaguely, and drawled, "Hello, How do you do?' And they shook hands. "'So you know him?' someone murmured to Denry. "'Know him? Since infancy?' the inquirer scented facetiousness, but he was somehow impressed. The remarkable thing was that though he regarded Captain Devereux as a popinjay, he could not help feeling a certain slight satisfaction in the fact that they were, in some sort, acquaintances. Mystery of the Human Heart He wished sincerely that he had not, in his conversation with the captain in the train, talked about previous visits to Switzerland. It was dangerous." the dance achieved that brightness and joviality which entitle a dance to call itself a success. The cotillion reached brilliance owing to the captaincy of Captain Deverer. Several score opprobious epithets were applied to the captain in the course of the night, but it was agreed, nemine contradicente, that whatever he would have done in front of a light brigade at Balaclava, as a leader of cotillions he was terrific. Many men, however, seem to argue that if a man who was a man led a cotillion, he ought not to lead it too well, on pain of being considered a coxcomb. At the close, during the hot soup, the worst happened. Denry had known that it would. Captain Devereux was talking to Nelly, who was respectfully listening, about the scenery, when the countess came up, plate in hand. "'No, no,' The Countess protested. As for me, I hate your mountains. I was born in the steppe, where it is all level. Level! Your mountains close me in. I am only here by order of my doctor. Your mountains get on my nerves. She shrugged her shoulders. Captain Devera smiled. It's the same with you, isn't it? he said, turning to Nelly. Oh, no, said Nelly simply but your husband told me the other day that when you and he were in geneva a couple of years ago the view of mont blanc used to upset you view of mont blanc Nelly stammered Everyone was aware that she and denry had never been in switzerland before and that their marriage was indeed less than a month old you misunderstood me said denry gruffly my wife hasn't been to geneva oh drawled Captain Deverer. His Oh! contained so much of insinuation, disdain, and lofty amusement, that Denry blushed, and when Nelly saw her husband's cheek, she blushed in competition, and defeated him easily. It was felt that either Denry had been romancing to the captain, or that he had been married before, unknown to his Nelly, and had been carrying on at Geneva. The situation— although it dissolved of itself in a brief space was awkward; it discredited the hotel Beausite. It was in the nature of a repulse for the hotel Beausite, franc a day cheaper than the metropole, and of a triumph for the popinjay. The fault was utterly Denry's, yet he said to himself, "I'll be even with that chap on the drive home." He was silent, the theme of conversation in the sleighs, which did not contain the countess was that the captain had flirted tremendously with the countess, and that it amounted to an affair. 4. Captain Deverer was equally salient in the Department of Sports. There was a fair sheet of ice, obtained by cutting into the side of the mountain, and a very good tobogganing-track, about half a mile in length, and full of fine curves, common to the two hotels. Denry's predilection was for the track— he would lie on his stomach on the little contrivance which the swiss call a luge and which consists of naught but three bits of wood and two steel-clad runners and would course down the perilous curves at twenty miles an hour until the captain came this was regarded as dashing because most people were content to sit on the luge and travel legs foremost instead of head foremost but the captain after a few eights on the ice "'intimated that for the rest no sport was true sport save the sport of ski-running. "'He allowed it to be understood that luges were for infants. "'He had brought his skis, and these instruments of locomotion, some six feet in length, "'made a sensation among the inexperienced. "'For when he had strapped them to his feet, the captain, while stating candidly "'that his skill was as nothing to that of the Swedish professionals at Samaritz, could assuredly slide over snow in a manner prodigious and beautiful and he was exquisitely clothed to the part his knickerbockers in the elegance of their lines were the delight of beholders skiing became the rage even nelly insisted on hiring a pair and the pronunciation of the word ski aroused long discussions and was never settled by anybody the captain said ski but he did not object to she which was said to be the more strictly correct, by a lady who knew someone who had been to Norway. People with no shame, and no feeling for correctness, said brazenly Sky. Denry, whom nothing could induce to desert his luge, said that obviously S-K-I could only spell Planks, and thanks to his inspiration this version was adopted by the majority. On the second day of Nellie's struggle with her skis, she had more success than she either anticipated or desired. She had been making experiments at the summit of the track, slithering about, falling, and being restored to uprightness by as many persons as happened to be near. Skis seemed to her the most ungovernable and least practical means of travel that the madness of man had ever concocted. Skates were well-behaved old horses compared to these long, untamed fiends, and a luge was like a tricycle. Then suddenly a friendly starting push drove her a yard or two, and she glided past the level on to the first imperceptible slope of the track. By some hazard her two planks were exactly parallel, as they ought to be, and she glided forward miraculously, and people heard her say, "'How lovely!' and then people heard her say, "'Oh! Oh!' for her pace was increasing, and she dared not strike her pole into the ground. She had, in fact, no control whatever over those two planks to which her feet were strapped. She might have been Mazeppa and they Mustangs. She could not even fall. So she fled down the preliminary strait of the track, and ecstatic spectators cried, "'Look how well Mrs. Machin is doing!' Mrs. Machin would have given all her furs to be anywhere off those planks." On the adjacent fields of glittering snow the captain had been giving his adored countess a lesson in the use of skis and they stood together the countess somewhat insecure by the side of the track at its first curve nelly dumb with excitement and amazement swept towards them look out cried the captain in vain he might himself perhaps have escaped but he could not abandon his countess in the moment of peril and the Countess could only move after much thought and many efforts, being scarce more advanced than Nelly. Nelly's willful planks quite ignored the curve, and, as it were afloat on them, she charged off the track and into the Captain and the Countess. The impact was tremendous. Six skis waved like semaphores in the air. Then all was still. Then, as the beholders hastened to the scene of the disaster, the Countess laughed, and Nelly laughed the laugh of the captain was not heard. The sole casualty was a wound about a foot long in the hinterland of the captain's unique knickerbockers, and as threads of that beautiful check pattern were afterwards found attached to the wheel of Nelly's pole, the cause of the wound was indisputable, and the captain departed home, chiefly backwards, but with great rapidity. In the afternoon, Denry went down to Montreux, and returned with an opal bracelet, which Nelly wore at dinner. "'Oh, what a ripping bracelet!' said a girl. "'Yes,' said Nelly. "'my husband gave it me only to "'I suppose it's your birthday or something,' the inquisitive girl ventured. "'No,' said Nelly. "'How nice of him!' said the girl. The next day, Captain Devereux appeared in riding-breeches. They were not correct for ski-running, but they were the best he could do. He visited a tailor's in Montreux. 5. The Countess Rule had a large sleigh of her own, also a horse. Both were hired from Montreux. In this vehicle, sometimes alone, sometimes with a male servant, she would drive at Russian speed over the undulating mountain roads, and for such expeditions she always wore a large red cloak with a hood. Often she was thus seen, in the afternoon, the scarlet made a bright moving patch on the vast expanses of snow. Once, at some distance from the village, two tale-tellers observed a man on skis careering in the neighbourhood of the sleigh. It was Captain Deverer. The flirtation, therefore, was growing warmer and warmer. The hotels hummed with the tidings of it. But the Countess never said anything— nor could anything be extracted from her by even the most experienced gossips. She was an agreeable but a mysterious woman, as befitted the Russian countess. Again and again were she and the captain seen together afar off in the landscape. Certainly it was a novelty in flirtations. People wondered what might happen between the two at the fancy-dress ball, which the Hotel Beausite was to give in return for the hospitality of the Hotel Metropole. The ball was offered not in love, but in emulation, almost in hate, for the jealousy displayed by the beaux against the increasing insolence of the Metropole had become acute. The airs of the captain and his lieges, the Clutterbuck Party, had reached the limit of the Beaux-Seats' endurance. The Metropole seemed to take it for granted that the captain would lead the cotillion at the Beaux-Seats' ball, as it had led it at the Metropole's. And then, on the very afternoon of the ball, the Countess received a telegram, it was said from St. Petersburg, which necessitated her instant departure, and she went, in an hour, down to Montreux by the funicular railway, and was lost to the beau-seat. This was a blow to the prestige of the beau for the Countess was its chief star, and moreover much loved by her fellow-guests, despite her curious weakness for the popinjay and the mystery of her outings with him. In the stables, Denry saw the countess's hired sleigh and horse, and in the sleigh her glowing red cloak, and he had one of his ideas, which he executed, although snow was beginning to fall. In ten minutes he and Nelly were driving forth, and Nelly in the red cloak, held the reins. Denry, in the coachman's furs, sat behind. They whirled past the hotel metropole, and shortly afterwards, on the wild road towards Atalens, then we saw a pair of skis, scudding as quickly as skis can scud in their rear. It was astonishing how the sleigh, with all the merry jingle of its bells, kept that pair of skis at a distance of about a hundred yards. It seemed to invite the skis to overtake it, and then to regret the invitation and flee further. Up the hills it would crawl, for the skis climbed slowly. Downhill it galloped, for the skis slid on the slopes at a dizzy pace. Occasionally a shout came from the skis, and the snow fell thicker and thicker. So for four or five miles, starlight commenced. Then the road made a huge descending curve round a hollowed meadow, and the horse galloped its best. But the skis, making a straight line down the snow, acquired the speed of an express, and gained on the sleigh one yard in every three. At the bottom, where the curve met the straight line, was a farmhouse and outbuildings and a hedge and a stone wall and other matters. The sleigh arrived at the point first, but only by a trifle. Mind your toes, Denry muttered to himself, meaning an injunction to the skis whose toes were three feet long. The skis, through the eddying snow, yelled frantically to the sleigh to give room. The skis shot up into the road, and in swerving aside, swerved into a snow-laden hedge, and clean over it into the farmyard, where they stuck themselves up in the air, as skis will when the person to whose feet they are attached is lying prone. The door of the farm opened, and a woman appeared. She saw the skis at her doorstep. She heard the sleigh-bells, but the sleigh had already vanished into the dusk. "'Well, that was a bit of a lark, that was, Countess,' said Denry to Nelly. "'That will be something to talk about. "'We'd better drive home through Corsier, and quick, too. "'It'll be quite dark soon.' "'Supposing he's dead?' Nelly breathed, aghast, reining in the horse. "'Not he,' said Denry. "'I saw him beginning to sit up.' "'But how will he get home?' "'It looks a very nice farmhouse,' said Denry. "'I should think he'd be sorry to leave it.' Six. When Denry entered the dining-room of the beaux which had been cleared for the ball, his costume drew attention not so much by its splendour or ingenuity as by its peculiarity. He wore a short Chinese-shaped jacket, which his wife had made out of blue linen, and a flat Chinese hat to match, which they had constructed together on a basis of cardboard, But his thighs were enclosed in a pair of absurdly ample riding-breeches of an impressive cheque, and cut to a comic exaggeration of the English pattern. He had bought the cloth for these at the tailor's in Montreux. Below them were very tight leggings, also English. In reply to a question as to what or whom he supposed himself to represent, he replied, "'A captain of Chinese cavalry, of course,' and he put an eyeglass into his left eye and stared.' Now, it had been understood that Nelly was to appear as Lady Jane Grey, but she appeared as Little Red Riding Hood, wearing over her frock the forgotten cloak of the Countess Roule. Instantly he saw her, Denry hurried towards her, with a movement of the legs and a flourish of the eyeglass in his left hand, which powerfully suggested a figure familiar to every member of the company. There was laughter. People saw that the idea was immensely funny and clever, and the laughter ran about like fire. At the same time some persons were not quite sure whether Denry had not lapsed a little from the finest taste in this caricature, and all of them were secretly afraid that the uncomfortable might happen when Captain Devereux arrived. However, Captain Devereux did not arrive. The party from the Metropole came with the news that he had not been seen at the hotel for dinner. It was assumed that he had been to Montreux and had missed the funicular back. "'Our two stars simultaneously eclipsed,' said Denry, as the Clatterbucks, representing all the history of England, stared at him curiously. "'Why?' exclaimed the Clutterbuck cousin. "'Who's the other?' "'The Countess,' said Denry. "'She went this afternoon, three o'clock.' And all the Metropole party fell into grief. "'It's a world of coincidences,' said Denry, with emphasis. "'You don't mean to insinuate?' said Mrs. Clutterbuck, with a nervous laugh, that Captain Deverer has uh, gone after the Countess. "'Oh, no,' said Denry, with unction. "'Such a thought never entered my head.' "'I think you're a very strange man, Mr. Machin,' retorted Mrs. Clutterbuck, hostile and not a bit reassured. "'May one ask what that costume is supposed to be?' "'A captain of Chinese cavalry,' said Denry, lifting his eyeglass. "'Nevertheless,' The dance was a remarkable success, and little by little, even the sternest adherents of the absent Captain Deverer deigned to be amused by Denry's Chinese gestures. Also, Denry led the cotillion, and was thereafter greatly applauded by the beau-seat. The visitors agreed among themselves that, considering that his name was not Devereux, Denry acquitted himself honourably. Later he went to the bureau, and returning, whispered to his wife, "'It's all right.' "'He's come back safe.' "'How do you know?' "'I've just telephoned to ask.' Denry's subsequent humour was wildly gay, and for some reason which nobody could comprehend he put a sling round his left arm. His efforts to insert the eyeglass into his left eye with his right hand were insistently ludicrous, and became a sure source of laughter for all beholders. When the Metropole Party were getting into their sleighs to go home it had ceased snowing. Denry was still trying to insert his eyeglass into his left eye, with his right hand, to the universal joy. 7. But the joy of the night was feeble in comparison with the violent joy of the next morning. Denry was wandering, apparently aimless, between the finish of the tobogganing track and the portals of the Metropole. The snowfall had repaired the defects of the worn track, but it needed to be flattened down by use, and a number of conscientious logeurs were flattening it by frequent descents, which grew faster at each repetition. Other holidaymakers were idling about in the sunshine. A page-boy of the Metropole departed in the direction of the Beauceat with a note. At length, the hour was nearing eleven, Captain Deverer, languid, put his head out of the metropole and sniffed the air. Finding the air sufferable, he came forth onto the steps. His left arm was in a sling. He was wearing the new knickerbockers which he had ordered at Montreux, and which were of precisely the same vast cheque as had ornamented Denry's legs on the previous night. "Hello," said Denry, sympathetically. "'What's this?' The captain needed sympathy. "'Skiing yesterday afternoon,' said he, with a little laugh. "'Hasn't the Countess told any of you?' "'No,' said Denry, "'not a word.' The captain seemed to pause a moment. "'Yes,' said he, "'a trifling accident. I was skiing with the countess. That is, I was skiing, and she was in her sleigh.' "'Then this is why you didn't turn up at the dance?' "'Yes,' said the captain. "'Well,' said Denry, "'I hope it's not serious. I can tell you one thing. The cotillion was a most fearful frost without you.' The captain seemed grateful. They strolled together toward the track. The first group of people that caught sight of the captain, with his checked legs and his arm in a sling, began to smile. Observing this smile, and fancying himself deceived, the captain attempted to put his eyeglass into his left eye with his right hand, and regularly failed. His efforts towards this feat changed the smiles to enormous laughter. "'I dare say it's awfully funny,' said he. "'But what can a fellow do with one arm in a sling?' The laughter was merely intensified, and the group, growing as luge after luge arrived at the end of the track, seemed to give itself up to mirth, to the exclusion of even a proper curiosity about the nature of the captain's damage. Each fresh attempt to put the eyeglass to his eye was coal on the crackling fire. The Clutterbucks alone seemed glum. "'What on earth is the joke?' Denry asked primly. "'Captain Deverer came to grief late yesterday afternoon, skiing with the Countess Rule. That's why he didn't turn up last night. By the way, where was it, Captain?' "'On the mountain, in near Atalens,' Deverer answered gloomily. "'Happily there was a farmhouse near. It was almost dark.' "'With the Countess?' demanded a young, impulsive schoolgirl. "'You did say the Countess, didn't you?' Denry asked. "'Why, certainly.' said the captain testily. "'Well,' said the schoolgirl with the nonchalant, thoughtless cruelty of youth, "'considering we all saw the Countess off in the funicular at three o'clock, I don't see how you could have been skiing with her when it was nearly dark.' And the child turned up the hill with her luge, leaving her elders to unknot the situation. "'Oh, yes,' said Denry, "'I forgot to tell you that the Countess left yesterday after lunch.' At the same moment the page-boy, reappearing, touched his cap, and placed a note in the captain's only free hand. "'Couldn't deliver it, sir. The Comtesse left early yesterday afternoon.' Convicted of imaginary adventure with noble ladies, the captain made his retreat, muttering, back to the hotel. At lunch Denry related the exact circumstances to a delighted table, and the exact circumstances soon reached the Clutterbuck faction at the Metropole. On the following day, the Clutterbuck faction and Captain Deverer, now fully enlightened, left Montprédu for some paradise unknown. If murderous thoughts could kill, Denry would have lain dead. But he survived to go with about half the Beausite guests to the funicular station to wish the Clutterbucks a pleasant journey. The captain might have challenged him to a duel, but a haughty and icy ceremoniousness was deemed the best treatment for Denry. "'Never show a wound!' must have been the captain's motto. The beau-seat had scored effectively, and now that its rival had lost eleven clients by one single train, it beat the Metropole even in vulgar numbers. Denry had an embryo of a conscience somewhere, and Nellie's was fully developed. "'Well,' said Denry, in reply to Nellie's conscience, "'it serves him right for making me look a fool over that Geneva business.' And besides, I can't stand uppishness, and I won't. I'm from the five towns I am. Upon which singular utterance the incident closed End of Chapter eleven This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andy Minter The Card. A Story of Adventure in the Five Towns. Chapter Twelve, The Supreme Honour. 1. Denry was not as regular in his goings and comings as the generality of businessmen in the Five Towns no doubt because he was not by nature a businessman at all, but an adventurous spirit who happened to be in a business which was much too good to leave. He was continually, as they say there, up to something, that caused changes in daily habits. Moreover, the Universal Thrift Club, Limited, was so automatic and self-winding that Denry ran no risks in leaving it often to the care of his highly-drilled staff. Still, he did usually come home to his tea about six o'clock of an evening, like the rest, and like the rest he brought with him a copy of the signal to glance at during tea. One afternoon in July he arrived thus upon his waiting wife at Machin House, Bleakridge, and she could see that an idea was fermenting in his head. Nelly understood him. One of the most delightful and reassuring things about his married life was Nelly's instinctive comprehension of him. His mother understood him profoundly, but she understood him in a manner sardonic, slightly malicious, and even hostile, whereas Nelly understood him with her absurd love. According to his mother's attitude, Denry was guilty until he had proved himself innocent. According to Nelly's, he was always right, and always clever in what he did, until he himself had said that he had been wrong and stupid, and not always then. Nevertheless, his mother was just as ridiculously proud of him as Nelly was, but she would have perished on the scaffold rather than admit that Denry differed in any detail from the common run of sons. Mrs. Machin had departed from Machin House without waiting to be asked. It was characteristic of her that she had returned to Broom Street and rented there an out-of-date cottage without a single one of the labour-saving contrivances that distinguished the residence which her son had originally built for her. It was still delicious for Denry to sit down to tea in the dining-room, that miracle of conveniences, opposite the smile of his wife, which told him a. that he was wonderful, b. that she was enchanted to be alive, and c. that he had deserved her particularly caressing attentions, and would receive them. On the afternoon in July the smile told him d. that he was possessed by one of his ideas. "'Extraordinary how she tumbles to things,' he reflected. Nellie's new fox-terrier had come in from the garden through the French window, and eaten part of a muffin, and Denry had eaten a muffin and a half before Nellie, straightening herself proudly and putting her shoulders back, a gesture of hers, thought fit to murmur, "'Well, anything thrilling happened to-day?' Denry opened the green sheet and read, "'Sudden Death of Alderman Bloor in London. What price that?' "'Oh!' exclaimed Nellie. "'How shocked Father will be! "'They were always rather friendly. "'By the way, I had a letter from Mother this morning. "'It appears as if Toronto was a sort of paradise. "'But you can see the old thing prefers Bursley. "'Father's had a boil on his neck, just at the edge of his collar. "'He says it's because he's too well. "'What did Mr. Bloor die of?' "'He was in the fashion,' said Denry. "'How?' appendicitis, of course, operation, domino, all over in three days. "'Poor man!' Nelly murmured, trying to feel sad for a change, and not succeeding. "'And he was to have been mayor in November, wasn't he? How disappointing for him!' "'I expect he's got something else to think about,' said Denry. "'After a pause Nelly asked suddenly, "'Who'll be mayor now?' "'Well,' said Denry, "'His Worship-Counselor Barlow, J.P., will be extremely cross if he isn't.' "'How horrid!' said Nelly, frankly. "'And he's got nobody at all to be mayoress.' "'Mrs. Prettyman would be mayoress,' said Denry. "'When there's no wife or daughter, it's always a sister, if there is one.' "'But can you imagine Mrs. Prettyman as mayoress? "'Why, they say she scrubs her own doorstep after dark. "'They ought to make you mayor.' "'Do you fancy yourself as mayoress?' he inquired. "'I should be better than Mrs. Prettyman, anyhow.' "'I believe you'd make an A-1, mayoress,' said Denry. "'I should be frightfully nervous,' she confidentially admitted. "'I doubt it,' said he. The fact was that since her return to Bursley from the honeymoon, Nellie was an altered woman. She had acquired, as it were in a day, to an astonishing extent, what in the five towns is called a nerve.' "'I should like to try it,' said she. "'One day you'll have to try it, whether you want to or not.' "'When will that be?' "'Don't know. Might be next year, but one. "'Old Barlow's pretty certain to be chosen for next November. "'It's looked on as his turn next. "'I know there's been a good bit of talk about me for the year after Barlow. "'Of course Bloor's death will advance everything by a year. "'But even if I come next after Barlow it'll be too late.' "'Too late? Too late for what?' "'I'll tell you,' said Denry. "'I wanted to be the youngest mare that Bursley's ever had. "'It was only a kind of notion I had a long time ago. "'I'd given it up, because I knew there was no chance, "'unless I came before Bloor, which of course I couldn't do. "'Now he's dead. "'If I could upset old Barlow's applecart, "'I should just be the youngest mare by the skin of my teeth.' Huskisson, the mayor in 1884, was aged thirty-four and six months. I have looked it all up this afternoon.' "'How lovely if you could be the youngest mayor!' "'Yes. I'll tell you how I feel. I feel as if I didn't want to be mayor at all, if I can't be the youngest mayor. You know, she knew.' "'Oh!' she cried, "'do upset Mr. Barlow's apple-cart. He's a horrid old thing. Should I be the youngest mayoress?' "'Not by chalks,' said he. "'Huskison's sister was only sixteen, "'But that's only playing at being mayoress,' Nellie protested. "'Anyhow, I do think you might be youngest mayor. "'Who settles it?' "'The council, of course. "'Nobody likes Councillor Barlow.' "'He'll be still less liked when he's wound up the Bursley Football Club.' "'Well, urge him to wind it up, then. "'But I don't see what football's got to do with being mayor.' she endeavoured to look like a serious politician. "'You're nothing but a cuckoo,' Denry pleasantly informed her. "'Football's got to do with everything, and it's been a disastrous mistake in my career that I've never taken any interest in football. Old Barlow wants no urging to wind up the football club. He's absolutely set on it. He's lost too much over it. If I could stop him from winding it up, I might—what? I don't know.' She perceived that his idea was yet vague. 2. Not very many days afterwards, the walls of Bursley called attention, by small blue and red posters—blue and red being the historic colours of the Bursley Football Club—to a public meeting, which was to be held in the town hall, under the presidency of the Mayor, to consider what steps could be taken to secure the future of the Bursley Football Club. There were two great football clubs in the five towns—Knipe, one of the oldest clubs in England, and Bursley. Both were in the league, though Knipe was in the first division, while Bursley was only in the second. Both were, in fact, limited companies, engaged as much in the pursuit of dividends as in the practice of the one ancient and glorious sport which appeals to the reason and the heart of England. Neither ever paid a dividend— Both employed professionals, who by a strange chance were nearly all born in Scotland, and both also employed trainers, who, before an important match, took the teams off to a hydropathic establishment, far, far distant from any public house. This was called training. Now, whereas the club was struggling along fairly well, the Bursley Club had come to the end of its resources. The great football public had practically deserted it. The explanation, of course, was that Bursley had been losing too many matches. The great football public had no use for anything but victories. It would treat its players like gods, so long as they won. But when they happened to lose, the great football public simply sulked. It did not kick a man that was down. It merely ignored him, well knowing that the man could not get up without help. It cared nothing whatever for fidelity, municipal patriotism, fair play, the chances of war, or dividends on capital. If it could see victories, it would pay sixpence, but it would not pay sixpence to assist at defeats. Still, when at a special general meeting of the Bursley Football Club Limited, held at the registered office, the coffee-house, Bursley, Councillor Barlow, J.P., chairman of the company since the creation of the League, announced that the directors had reluctantly come to the conclusion that they could not conscientiously embark on the dangerous risks of the approaching season, and that it was the intention of the directors to wind up the club, in default of adequate public interest. When Bursley read this in the signal, the town was certainly shocked. Was the famous club, then, to disappear for ever?' and the football-ground to be sold in plots, and the grandstand for firewood. The shock was so severe that the death of Alderman Bloor, none the less a mighty figure in Bursley, had passed as a minor event. Hence the advertisement of the meeting in the town-hall caused joy and hope, and people said to themselves, "'Something's bound to be done. The old club can't go out like that.' And everybody grew quite sentimental.' And although nothing is supposed to be capable of filling Bursley Town Hall, except a political meeting and an old folks' treat, Bursley Town Hall was as near full as made no matter for the football question. Many men had cheerfully sacrificed a game of billiards and a glass of beer in order to attend it. The mayor in the chair was a mild old gentleman who knew nothing whatever about football, and had probably never seen a football match. But it was essential that the meeting should have august patronage and so the mayor had been trapped and tamed. On the mere fact that he paid an annual subscription to the golf club, certain parties built up the legend that he was a true sportsman, with the true interests of sport in his soul. He uttered a few phrases, such as, "'The manly game,' "'Old associations,' "'Bound up with the history of England,' "'Splendid fellows,' "'Indomitable pluck,' "'Dogged my misfortune.' Indeed, he produced quite an impression on the rude and grim audience." and then he called upon Councillor Barlow to make a statement. Councillor Barlow, on the Mayor's right, was a different kind of man from the Mayor. He was fifty, and iron-grey, with whiskers but no moustache, short, stoutish, raspish. He said nothing about manliness, pluck, history, or old lang syne. He said that he had given his services as chairman to the football club for thirteen years— that he had taken up £2,000 worth of shares in the company, and that as at that moment the company's liabilities would exactly absorb its assets, his £2,000 was worth exactly nothing. "'You may say,' he said, "'I've lost that £2,000 in thirteen years. That is, it's the same as if I'd been steadily paying £3 a week out of my own pocket to provide football matches that you chaps wouldn't take the trouble to go and see.' "'That's the straight of it.' "'What have I got for my pains? Nothing but worries, and these,' he pointed to his grey hairs. "'And I'm not alone. There's others. And now I have to come and defend myself at a public meeting. I'm supposed not to have the best interests of football at heart. Me and my co-directors,' he proceeded, with an even rougher raspishness, "'have warned the town again and again what would happen if the matches weren't better patronised. "'And now it's happened. And now it's too late. You want to do something. You can't. It's too late. "'There's only one thing the matter with first-class football in Bursley,' he concluded, "'and it isn't the players. It's the public. It's yourselves. You're the most craven lot of tomfools that ever a big football club had to do with. When we lose a match, what do you do? Do you come and encourage us next time?' "'No. You stop away.' "'and leave us fifty or sixty pounds out of pocket on a match, "'just to teach us better. "'Do you expect us to win every match? "'Why, Preston North End itself—' "'Here he spoke solemnly of heroes. "'Preston North End itself, in its great days, "'didn't win every match. "'It lost to Accrington. "'But did the Preston public desert it? "'No. "'You? "'You haven't got the pluck of a louse "'nor the faithfulness of a cat. you starved your football club to death.' "'And now you call a meeting to weep and grumble, "'and you have the insolence to write letters to the signal "'about bad management, forsooth. "'If anybody in the hall thinks that he can manage this club "'better than me and my co-directors have done, "'I may say that we hold a majority of the shares, "'and we'll part with the whole show to any clever person or persons "'who care to take it off our hands at a bargain price. "'That's talking.' "'He sat down. "'Silence fell.' "'Even in the five towns a public meeting is seldom bullied as Councillor Barlow had bullied that meeting.' "'It was aghast. Councillor Barlow had never been popular. "'He had merely been respected. "'But thenceforth he became even less popular than before.' "'I'm sure we shall all find Councillor Barlow's heat quite excusable.' "'The mayor diplomatically began. "'No heat at all,' the Councillor interrupted. "'Simply cold truth.' A number of speakers followed, and nearly all of them were against the directors. Some, with prodigious memories for every combination of players in every match that had ever been played, sought to prove, by detailed instances, that Councillor Barlow and his co-directors had persistently and regularly muddled their work during thirteen industrious years, and they defended the insulted public by asserting that no public that respected itself would pay sixpence to watch the wretched football provided by Councillor Barlow. They shouted that the team wanted reconstituting, wanted new blood. "'Yes?' shouted Councillor Barlow in reply. "'And how are you going to get new blood, with transfer fees as high as they are now? You can't get even an average good player for less than two hundred pounds. Where's the money to come from?' "'Anybody want to lend a thousand or so on second debentures?' <laughs> "'He laughed sneeringly. "'No one showed a desire to invest in second debentures of the Bursley F.C. Limited. "'Still, speakers kept harping on the necessity of new blood in the team. "'And then others, Bolder, harped on the necessity of new blood on the board.' "'Shares on sale!' cried the councillor. "'Any buyers?' "'Or,' oh, he added, "'do you want something for nothing?' "'As usual.' At length a gentleman rose at the back of the hall. "'I don't pretend to be an expert on football,' said he, "'though I think it is a great game. "'But I should like to say a few words as to this question of new blood.' The audience craned its neck. "'Will Mr. Councillor Machin kindly step up to the platform?' the Mayor suggested. And up Denry stepped. The thought in every mind was, "'What's he going to do?' "'What's he got up his sleeve this time?' Three cheers for Machin!' people chanted gaily. "'Order!' cried the Mayor. Denry faced the audience. He was now accustomed to audiences. He said, "'If I'm not mistaken, one of the greatest modern footballers is a native of this town.' And scores of voices yelled, "'Aye! calear calear Greatest centre-forward in England!' "'Yes,' said Denry." "'Calleer is the man, I mean. Collier left the district, unfortunately for the district, "'at the age of nineteen for Liverpool. "'And it was not until after he left "'that his astounding abilities were perceived. "'It isn't too much to say that he made the fortune of Liverpool City, "'and I believe it's a fact that he scored more goals in three seasons "'than any other player has ever done in the league. "'Then York County, which was in a tight place last year, "'bought him from Liverpool for a high price.' "'And as all the world knows, Collier had his leg broken in the first match he played for his new club. "'That just happened to be the ruin of the York Club, which is now quite suddenly in bankruptcy, "'which happily we're not, and which is disposing of its players. "'Gentlemen, I say that Collier ought to come back to his native town. "'He's fitter than ever he was, and his proper place is in his native town.' "'Loud cheers!' as captain and centre-forward of the club of the mother of the five towns, he would be an immense acquisition and attraction, and he'd lead us to victory. Renewed cheers! "'And how?' demanded Councillor Barlow, jumping up angrily. "'Are we to get him back to his precious native town? Councillor Machin admits that he's not an expert on football. "'It will probably be news to him that Aston Villa have offered £700 to York for the transfer of Collier. And Blackburn Rovers have offered seven hundred and fifty pounds, and they're fighting it out between them. Any gentleman willing to put down eight hundred pounds to buy Collier for Bursley? He sneered. I don't mind telling you that steam engines and the king himself couldn't get Collier into our club. Quite finished, Denry inquired, still standing. Laughter overtopped by Councilor Barlow's snort as he sat down. Denry lifted his voice. "'Mr. Killeer, will you be good enough to step forward and let us all have a look at you?' The effect of these apparently simple words surpassed any effect previously obtained by the most complex flights of oratory in that hall. A young, blushing, clumsy, long-limbed, small-bodied giant stumbled along the central aisle, and climbed the steps to the platform, where Denry pointed him to a seat. He was recognised by all the true votaries of the game— and everybody said to everybody, "'By gosh, it's him right enough! It's Calleer!' And a vast astonishment and expectation of good fortune filled the hall. Applause burst forth, and though no one knew what the appearance of Calleer signified, the applause continued and waxed. "'Good old Calleer!' the hoarse shouts succeeded each other. "'Good old Machin!' "'Anyhow,' said Denry, when the storm was stilled, "'We've got him here, without either steam-engines or His Majesty. "'Will the directors of the club accept him?' "'And what about the transfer?' Councillor Barlow demanded. "'Would you accept him and try another season, if you could get him free?' "'Denry retorted. Councillor Barlow always knew his mind, "'and was never afraid to let other people share that knowledge. "'Yes,' he said. "'Then I will see that you have the transfer free.' "'But what about York?' "'I have settled with York provisionally,' said Denry. "'That's my affair. "'I have returned from York today. "'Leave all that to me. "'This town has had many benefactors, far more important than myself. "'But I shall be able to claim this originality. "'I am the first to make a present of a live man to the town. "'Gentlemen, Mr. Mayor, I venture to call for three cheers "'for the greatest centre-forward in England, our fellow-townsmen.' The scene, as the signal said, was unique. And at the sports club, and the other clubs afterwards, men said to each other, no one but him would have thought of bringing Kaleer over specially and showing him on the platform. That's cost him above tuppence, that has. Two days later a letter appeared in the signal, signed Fiat Justitia, suggesting that Denry, as some reward for his public spirit, ought to be the next mayor of Bursley, in place of Alderman Bloor, deceased. The letter urged that he would make an admirable mayor, the sort of mayor the old town wanted in order to wake it up. And also it pointed out that Denry would be the youngest mayor that Bursley had ever had, and probably the youngest mayor in England that year. The sentiment in the last idea appealed to the town. The town decided that it would positively like to have the youngest mayor it had ever had, and probably the youngest mayor in England that year. The signal printed dozens of letters on the subject. When the council met, more informally than formally, to choose a chief magistrate in place of the dead alderman, several councillors urged that what Bursley wanted was a young and popular mayor, and in fine, Councillor Barlow was shelled for a year. On the choice being published, the entire town said, now we shall have a morality, and don't you forget it and Denry said to Nelly, "You'll be mayoress to the youngest mayor, etc my child, and it's cost me, including hotel and travelling expenses, eight hundred and eleven pounds six and sevenpence three the rightness of the council in selecting Denry as mayor." was confirmed in a singular manner by the behaviour of the football and of Collier at the opening match of the season. It was a philanthropic match between Bursley and Axe, for the benefit of a county orphanage, and according to the custom of such matches the ball was formally kicked off by a celebrity, a pillar of society. The ceremony of kicking off has no sporting significance. The celebrity, merely with gentleness, pr- propels the ball out of the white circle, and then flies for his life from the melee but it is supposed to add to the moral splendour of the game. In the present instance the posters said, Kick-off at 3.45 by Councillor E. H. Machin, Mayor-designate, and, indeed, no other celebrity could have been decently selected. On the fine afternoon of the match, Denry therefore discovered himself with a new football at his toes, a silk hat on his head, and twenty-two Herculean players menacing him in attitudes expressive of an intention to murder him. Bursley had lost the toss, and hence Denry had to kick towards the Bursley goal. As the signal said, he dispatched the sphere straight into the keeping of Calair, who, as centre-forward, was facing him, and Calleer was dodging down the field with it before the axe-players had finished admiring Denry's effrontery. Every reader will remember with a thrill the historic match in which the immortal Jimmy Brown, on the last occasion when he captained Blackburn Rovers, "'dribbled the ball himself down the length of the field, "'scored a goal, and went home with the English cup under his arm. "'Killeer evidently intended to imitate the feat. "'He was entirely wrong. "'Dribbling tactics had been killed for ever years before "'by Preston North End, who invented the passing game. "'Yet Coler went on, and good luck seemed to float over him like a cherub. "'Finally he shot, a wild high shot, But there was an adverse wind which dragged the ball down, swept it round, and blew it into the net. The first goal had been scored in twenty seconds. It was also the last in the match. Collier's reputation was established. Useless for solemn experts to point out that he had simply been larking for the gallery, and that the result was a shocking fluke. Collier's reputation was established. He became at once the idol of the populace. As Denry walked gingerly off the field to the grandstand, he too was loudly cheered, and he could not help feeling that somehow it was he who had scored that goal, and although nobody uttered the precise thought, most people did secretly think, as they gazed at the triumphant Denry, that a man who had triumphed like that, because he triumphed like that, was the right sort of man to be mayor, the kind of man they needed. Denry became identified with the highest class of local football. This fact led to a curious crisis in the history of municipal manners. On Corporation Sunday, the Mayor walks to church, preceded by the mace, and followed by the aldermen and councillors, the borough officials, the volunteers, and the fire brigade. After all these, in the procession, come individuals known as prominent citizens. Now the 1st and 2nd Elevens of the Bursley Football Club, headed by Collier, expressed their desire to occupy a place in Denry's mayoral procession. They felt that some public acknowledgment was due to the mayor for his services to the national sport. Denry instantly agreed with thanks. The notion seemed to him entirely admirable. Then some unfortunately inspired parson wrote to the Signal to protest against professional footballers following the chief magistrate of the borough to church. His arguments were that such a thing was unheard of, and that football was the cause of a great deal of evil gambling. Some people were inclined to agree with the protest, until Denry wrote to the Signal, and put a few questions. Was Bursley proud of its football team, or was Bursley ashamed of its football team? Was the practice of football incompatible with good citizenship? Was there anything dishonourable in playing football? Ought professional footballers to be considered as social pariahs? Was there any class of beings to whom the churches ought to be closed? The parson foundered in a storm of opprobrium, scorn, and ironic laughter. Though the town laughed, it only laughed to hide its disgust of the parson. People began to wonder whether the teams would attend in costume, carrying the football between them on a charger as a symbol. No such multitudes ever greeted a mayoral procession in Bursley before. The footballers, however, appeared in ordinary costume, many of them in frock-coats, but they wore neckties of the club colours, a device which was agreed to be in the nicest taste. St. Luke's Church was crowded, and what is stranger the churchyard was also crowded. The church barely held the procession itself, and the ladies, who, by influence, had been accommodated with seats in advance. Thousands of persons filled the churchyard, and to prevent them from crushing into the packed fane, and bursting it at its weakest point, the apse, the doors had to be locked and guarded. Four women swooned during the service. Neither Mrs. Machin, Senior nor Nellie was among the four. It was the first time that any one had been known to swoon at a religious service held in November. This fact alone gave a tremendous prestige to Denry's morality, when, with Nelly on his arm, he emerged from the church to the thunders of the organ, the greeting which he received in the churchyard, though the solemnity of the occasion for bad clapping lacked naught in brilliance and efficacy. The real point and delight of that Corporation Sunday— was not fully appreciated till later. It had been expected that the collection after the sermon would be much larger than usual, because the congregation was much larger than usual. But the churchwardens were startled to find it four times as large as usual. They were further startled to find only three Threepenny bits amongst all the coins. This singularity led to comment and to note-comparing. Everybody had noticed for weeks past a growing dearth of Threepenny bits. Indeed, Threpney Bits had practically vanished from circulation in the five towns. On the Monday it became known that the clerks of the various branches of the Universal Thrift Club Limited had paid into the banks enormous and unparalleled quantities of Threepney Bits, and for at least a week afterwards everybody paid for everything in Threepney Bits, and the piquant news passed from mouth to mouth that Denry, to the simple end of ensuring a thumping collection for charities on Corporation Sunday, had used the vast organisation of the Thrift Club to bring about a famine of Threpney Bits. In the annals of the town that Sunday is referred to as Threpney Bit Sunday, because it was so happily devoid of Threpney Bits. A little group of councillors were discussing Denry, "'What a card!' said one, laughing joyously. "'He's a rare and no mistake.' "'Of course, this'll make him more popular than ever,' said another. "'We've never had a man to touch him for that.' "'And yet,' demanded Councillor Barlow, "'what's he done? Has he ever done a day's work in his life? "'What great cause is he identified with?' "'He's identified,' said the Speaker, "'with the great cause of cheering us all up. End of chapter 12 and of The Card by Arnold Bennett. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savoury tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it.